your classic American millionaire is no longer the person that goes to Silicon Valley and nails it out of the park with a Facebook. It's someone just kind of building slowly with a boring Main Street business like commercial landscaping or HVAC installation or surveying, just building unbelievable time and financial wealth and freedom. Welcome to the Midland Money Mindset. This is a podcast that's all about getting your mind right when it comes to all things money. In every episode, we go deep with engaging guests who provide tangible takeaways and a whole lot of joy along the way. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I enjoyed having them. Let's dive into today's show. I'm Larry Sprung, your host for the Midland Money Mindset and founder and wealth advisor of Midland Financial. Today's guest is Kevin Henderson, co-founding partner of SMB Law Group and the SMB Center and the host of the Mundane Millionaires podcast. Kevin is a seasoned corporate lawyer with over a decade of M&A, venture capital, and capital markets experience at some of the world's best law firms. In 2022, together with his partners, they identified a need for experienced transactional lawyers with the skill set they brought from Wall Street to the Main Street small and medium-sized business space, SMB for short. SMB Law Group was founded with the vision to become the leading SMB-focused transaction law firm for searchers, buyers, operators, sellers, and investors in the SMB space. They are industry agnostic and represent clients across the spectrum, including home services, professional services, media and entertainment, fashion, retail, and manufacturing. Kevin also has significant experience representing cannabis businesses in corporate and commercial transactions, from startups to MSOs in all areas of the supply chain. In addition to his professional work at SMB Law Group, Kevin currently sits on the board of directors for Hope's Door New Beginning Center, a nonprofit focused on providing shelter, aid, and other resources to members of Dallas and Collin counties affected by domestic abuse. Prior to founding SMB Law Group, Kevin worked at large international law firms in Dallas, San Diego, New York, and London, as well as at an NYSE listed S&P 500 industrial manufacturer headquartered in Dallas, Texas. Listen in for some great takeaways about building a professional service firm to help those that need it most, while attracting some of the top talent that are typically attracted to larger institutional law practices. I have the pleasure today of being with Kevin Henderson, co-founding partner of the SMB Law Group and the SMB Center, as well as the host of the Mundane Millionaires podcast. Thanks for joining us today, Kevin. No, it's a pleasure to be here. Appreciate you having me on. Listen, there have been some interesting things going on that have led to us connecting. And before we kind of jump into that, I like giving a little bit of background about the people we have on the show, because that's really what it's about. It's about the people. So can you give us a little bit about who Kevin Henderson is and like a 10,000 foot view of what got you to where you are today? At the most basic level, I'm an M&A lawyer. 
That's what I've done my whole career. So I graduated from Michigan Law School. You'll see me sipping on my Michigan mug throughout here and started at the big law firms. Went to a well-known New York law firm, kind of the elite Wall Street firms, spent some time overseas in London, moved to California and did the tech scene for a little bit and ended up in Texas almost 10 years. I guess it's nine years next month. So I've been living out here with my family, spent several more years in big law and started kind of wanting to look for something different. I went in-house for a little bit with a large public company. That means as opposed to a law firm where I work for a lot of clients, I went and worked for a single company where that company was my only client, right? I was an employee of a large corporation, didn't like the corporate life either, and really kept feeling that entrepreneur tug. A year ago, I left that job and co-founded SMB Law Group, which is a We'll call it a boutique corporate M&A law firm to serve the entrepreneur community. So I said at my most fundamental level, I'm an M&A lawyer. I'm also an entrepreneur and passionate about the entrepreneurship space, passionate about our small business and entrepreneur clients. I don't know if that's 10,000 feet as opposed <laughs> to 30,000 feet, but that's a little bit about me. Listen, I love it. And your story resonates with me as I've shared with our listeners before. I came from a uh, big investment type firm environment and it wasn't for me. I felt like we weren't able to serve the families the way I felt they should be served. Number one. The second thing was like you, I, I don't feel like I'm a good employee. I feel like I'm almost unemployable as an entrepreneur. This was a great way for me to get out there and form my own firm. So a lot of what you're saying, there's a lot of similarities there. So what ended up leading you? Obviously, it was some dislike, if you will, for lack of a better term, with regard to being in the large corporate environment. But what led you, Eric and Sam, to found the SMB Law Group? And what brought you guys together? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it was kind of twofold that the not really enjoying and fitting in the corporate environment was certainly a large factor. But that could have led to really any type of practice. And I was building a little bit of a solo practice on my own. That was largely M&A, but not necessarily. I'm also a securities lawyer by training. I was doing kind of some small VC and security raises, some general corporate things, even getting into some estate planning a little bit, thinking that I would eventually transition full-time just with the solo practice. What really led to SMB Law Group was a combination of that factor with kind of some serendipitous timing. So you asked what brought the three of us together. Eric and I have known each other for seven or eight years now. I've lost track. He was a brand new associate out of law school at the large law firm I was working at at the time here in Dallas. So we worked together previously and have been friends ever since. Our families are friends. I watched him have his kids. He watched my kids grow up. And he started tweeting and stumbled across this sort of ETA community, the small business ETA means entrepreneurship through acquisition. And there was this growing community on Twitter really during COVID, an ecosystem of people who were taking this alternate path to entrepreneurship. And that is the classic entrepreneur is your startup, right? And you had this whole new sector of people out there saying, well, you don't have to start a business. You could go buy an already lucrative business. He started just kind of joining in the Twitter conversation thinking that his transition was going to be to buying a business at the time. But he obviously 
tweeted what he knew, which was M&A, and it resonated immediately. I mean, he went viral within a matter of weeks. He had thousands of followers and growing, was getting invited to speak on panels and things like that. We started putting our heads together and realizing like there's a real lack in this space of high quality M&A lawyers, like with our background and training where we've done tons of deals, been trained by the best lawyers in America, right, at these large elite law firms that largely look at the small business space as simple and boring and frankly, not lucrative enough, right? Yeah, let's let's call it what it is, right? There's not enough dollar signs there, right? Yeah, exactly. When you can bill $1,800 an hour to BlackRock, why are you going to go bill $400 an hour to pick your small business? That's really the genesis of the idea was his Twitter DMs were blowing up literally daily thousands of dollars of potential legal revenue in people in his DMs saying, hey, I'm under LOI on a deal. It's a $4 million deal. I can't get a lawyer to call me back. Can you help me find a good M&A lawyer? He was trying to refer things out to people he knew. Those people weren't returning phone calls, weren't being responsive, were turning down deals for being too small. We just sort of looked at each other. The This was the end of 2021. I say looked at each other. We were on the phone and, and just kind of stopped in our tracks and we're like, could we do this? Like, should we look at launching a law firm dedicated to this space? That was the genesis of the idea. To tie that out, our third partner, Sam, we talk a lot and we talk openly and publicly about how we're a social media built law firm. We launched the law firm officially. I quit my W-2 job. I was in full-time taking clients before I ever met Sam in person. We met Sam on Twitter. He was part of the community. He's a lawyer by training, but was one of the smart ones that got out very quickly. He was like, man, I hate this. And he's since 2016 or 17 has been running a small kind of micro PE fund in this space of investing and buying small sub $5 million businesses. We immediately saw in him someone who is both a partner, so he could be involved in a law firm. Quick sidebar, if your listeners don't know, in almost all states, except for two or three, non-lawyers are not allowed to own equity in law firms. That's what I mean by that. So we don't have the benefit of hiring like a business school grad to help with strategy and be able to incentivize them with, with equity. We saw a really unique opportunity in Sam, obviously, who is a lawyer by training and therefore could be a partner in our law firm, but brought a whole different skill set because what Eric and I do very, very, very well is M&A. We've never run a business before and Sam's been doing it for years. And so it was a perfect partnership among the three of us. That's how we came together. We launched in May of 2022 with kind of a formal public launch just at the start of this year as we ramped up during 2022. And it's been going really well. I love it. I love how that all came together. And for our listeners' knowledge, just can you share with them SMB? It's not your guys' initials, names. What does that really stand for? That's right. Yeah, it's an acronym kind of term of art in the industry. It stands for small and medium-sized business. So it's a reasonably common um, acronym for the small business space, a proxy for the small business space. So you'll hear people talk about SMBs, right? They're referring to these small and medium-sized businesses. There's varying definitions, but it's generally like under 50 employees, right? Under 20, $25 million of revenue before you start coming out of the SMB space into that like lower middle market, which you'll often see as LMM, right? The lower middle market space. So it's 
built from the same ethos and is meant to refer to those small businesses. Why do you think SMB Law Group's messaging has resonated so much? Where do you attribute that to? It's a little bit of a tough question. If I had to pin it down to a couple of things, in large part, I would say it's our willingness to build on social media, number one. There are a lot of tricky ethical rules around advertising in the legal space. Whether or not you're aware of these, suffice it to say, the legal profession is very good at making it hard to run a business. One of those is making it very, very hard to say anything publicly without it running afoul of ethics rules that require filings and fees to be paid and all sorts of things. And so a lot of lawyers are just because they don't have the time or inclination to figure out what the boundaries are, they just they shy away from participating in public spaces. Somewhat similar to my profession, by the way. 100%. Maybe not to the extent of your profession, but we have similarities in that regard where there are people that are just staying away because they don't want to have to navigate the waters rather than navigating the waters and figuring out how to do it effectively and ethically and right, right? Very much, yeah. And I think part of what goes hand in hand there is also knowing, and maybe you see this in the financial services space as well, the mindset of people that go into law oftentimes aren't those kind of self-starting entrepreneur-minded people. So even if you took the handcuffs off of tricky ethical and advertising rules, a lot of lawyers just are not good business people and they don't think smartly about marketing and things like that. I think it's partly just the combination of a few partners that came together that were willing to navigate those rules and be a little more thoughtful and surgical about how we use social media in a way that's productive. People don't want to buy from salespeople anymore, even though sales is still at the root of business. And they will sniff out like that when you're being a salesperson, as opposed to being a genuine person. And that's the difference between making it and breaking it, so to speak, on social media. I think that had a large, a lot to do with it. I think secondly, I would be remiss to point out like, we're great lawyers, but we don't claim to be the smartest M&A lawyers in the planet. There are other great M&A lawyers out there, right? I think part of it is also, I referred earlier to this sort of serendipitous timing that this whole ecosystem was starting to build on social media and lawyers hadn't joined the conversation yet. So I think there was a little bit of first mover advantage as well, if I'm being candid. And then third, I think just the way we message lawyers are often thought of and often think of themselves as just third-party counselors to clients as opposed to kind of business partners, not in the traditional sense of a partnership, but in the sense of we want deep relationships with our client. We want to be strategic partners with our clients where we're involved in more than just, hey, what does this statute mean in this scenario, but more like, how can we help go further together? And I think that resonates a lot with the entrepreneurship community, because particularly on the buy side, when people are out searching for businesses, it's lonely. Sellers have a broker, at least. Love or hate the broker network. They're at least someone to bounce ideas off of. A lot of these searchers don't have people to turn to, can't ask dumb questions, feel bad asking dumb questions. And so the the willingness to sort of be available and be public and hit us with questions and let's talk about it and let's educate and let's help you figure out how to navigate this tricky business buying space. Because to private equity funds, this doesn't look like big dollars, but to the 
guy that's worked 15 years saving up a hundred grand in cash to put a down payment on an HVAC business. I mean, they're literally leveraging with an SBA loan. They're signing a personal guarantee. They are literally leveraging their personal and their family's financial future. And the stakes are just, they're way too high to go it alone. So I think that's probably the third piece I would peg it on is just the willingness to take a phone call, respond to a Twitter DM, time permitting, and just be available and helpful to the community, which is what we ultimately want to do. I think that's a great value proposition and probably, like you said, the reason why you've been so successful. Now, SMB is a remote company. You're a boutique, as you mentioned, corporate law firm, and you are, ha- you know, you're in a position where you're attracting some of the top talent that's out there. What do you have to say to leaders now, now that we're coming out of COVID and now some leaders are demanding that people return back to the office full time? And you're obviously on the other end of the spectrum. You're going to, it seems like, remain remote and this boutique firm. What do you have to say to those leaders that are taking the opposite approach? I would first caveat with, I get that every business can't be remote. Let's start there, right? I understand that it's not a one-size-fits-all for everybody when it comes to the, the office, the remote work environment. That said, I think the ability, especially for as long as it happened during the pandemic, the kind of appetite to go into an office for a job that everyone kind of knows doesn't need to be done in an office is just not going to come back in the same way that it used to just be an accepted part of the work landscape in America. And I think the more leaders and the quicker that they realize that, the better they'll be able to retain and recruit talent. So, I mean, if you think about it for a second, I'm in Dallas. My two partners are in Florida, Tampa and Orlando. If we were focused on building in an office, A, we probably wouldn't have launched this firm together, right? Because three people in three geographies with three different offices, like that's just cost prohibitive. It would never work, right? Right. The lawyers that we've been adding, right? We added another lawyer. Our first lawyer we added was in South Florida. Then we added a lawyer in Minnesota, right? And then the D.C., Maryland area. Now another Texas lawyer that's relocating to Georgia, Michigan, right? The ability to go out and find the talent that you need, the pool expands so broadly in a low-cost way. It's hard to imagine other than just sort of a kind of allegiance to the past and the way it's always been done. It's hard to imagine the justification to limit that pool to your local recruiting pool or the cost with a national search and relocating someone. Again, no one size fits all and it's not going to work for everyone. But I do feel like the professional services space is one that is ripe for kind of forward thinking and remote work, which is ironic to say in the legal space, which is probably like the least forward thinking profession in America. I'm sure I'll be corrected on another (laughs) profession or two that may be worse, but that's not known for innovation or forward thinking. I would just say to those leaders, I mean, be really thoughtful about what the actual needs are. People will rise to the challenge and the ones that won't, there's a process for that in business and you you let them go and move on. The beauty of remote work and not having invested $35,000 and relocating a family from Los Angeles to Atlanta, right, is that it makes it a lot more palatable if you find this person just is not working in a remote environment. 
move on to the next recruit. And I get it. That's easy to say. I mean, there's costs associated with opening a new employee requisition and going out and, and searching. But as you build an environment that supports it, you're going to attract the talent that wants to work there. Like we just, granted, we're small, we're in the early innings, but we've hit home runs with every person we've added to the team because they want that environment and they're willing to rise to the challenge. Yeah, well, let's talk about that talent for a minute because that was one of the uh, main impetuses for us reaching out and, and wanting to connect with you. A few weeks ago, one of your newest attorneys, Eli Albrecht, shared a powerful post about work-life balance. And we talk about it here in terms of work-life harmony because we feel like work-life balance gives the impression that you have to give up something to get it. And we think that there's a way that you could kind of bring it all together and have that harmony. I love that idea. And his post also shared how a big law firm put in emails, uh, you know, this terrible statement that they will not hire Jews. Now, I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't talk about this. Number one, being somebody of the Jewish faith, it's yep. something that resonates with me. And number two, even if I wasn't Jewish, just simply as a human being, to see those words and see somebody write something like that is incredibly disturbing. Can you talk a little bit about that post and how it resonated with you and how you guys came together as a result, I believe? Well, I can't say that we came together as a result, we've been talking to Ellie is his first name. We've been talking to Ellie for a while. He's got a massive following in LinkedIn and as a firm building publicly and in social media, it's always been an intriguing idea. But it certainly brought home as we were finalizing kind of discussions to bring him onto the team, how good of a fit Ellie and SMB Law Group is. Yeah, I mean, the post you're referring to is an interesting one, just to back up for very quick second for your listeners, there was very kind of famously and publicly this law firm, it was a couple of partners that broke off from a large, like, it's called the AMLA 200. That's like the term in the legal industry for large law firms, a large AMLA 200 firm where these couple of partners, and they took a ton of lawyers with them, huge practice area, broke off on their own, large public launch, ostensibly over work-life harmony and all the, we don't want the toxicity of these large law firms, et cetera, et cetera. And then the scandal drops that the founding partners, you know, a bunch of emails went public. The, we will not hire Jews, certainly egregious. The things they were saying about women, their employees, their support staff, I mean, racial comments, I just absolutely like toxic, disgusting comments and things like that. But it sort of brought to light this kind of underculture, right, that doesn't really get talked about a lot, or I say that I recognize from a place of privilege, at least kind of very openly and publicly doesn't get talked about a lot. Obviously, with the communities that are harmed by this type of behavior, it's talked about quite a lot. But I think it brought that to the public eye for someone like me that's like, wow, this like actually still happens in 2023. You know, as a white, non-Jewish male, I don't see that. That's the place of privilege I sit in. And to have that reminder that there are powerful people in powerful places who will be kept in those powerful places by companies and law firms very publicly flouting diversity and DE&I and inclusive work culture and whatever. But as long as that partners bring clients through the door, we're going to brush that under the rug. We're going to hide the email. We're going to settle with the employee and make it go away. 
it just highlights how difficult it is to be comfortable or kind of what you have to trade to be comfortable to make it in places and cultures like that. We are trying to be different. That's part of the the joy of this kind of remote work environment where high quality talent now has other options than sitting in a downtown sky rise in New York for a large legacy law firm where a young female lawyer, a young Jewish lawyer or whatever kind of has to go into it just sort of grinning through their teeth, accepting that this is part of the go along to get along, which is just an, an awful part of, of work culture in a lot of these places. So it's super powerful post that just really brings home what we're trying to build at SME Law Group, what a lot of other people are trying to build out there as they rethink, is this really the best way to build my career? And do I really have to trade on some of these moral and personal and ethical issues and in order to get ahead. And, and I think the answer is increasingly becoming no, which is what we're trying to show with our law firm. I agree with everything you said. I, like you, you know, from a place of privilege, am shocked at stories that I've heard and been talked about and with in my profession. Similarly, it's eye-opening because I like many times it's not said or I see it around me, but evidently it's still happening, which is crazy. So you talked about the prestige of some of these law firms, right? And I think there's some similarities in our profession. There are some wealth management firms that have this prestige about them that attracts people not because they're the right place for them, but they think that they're going to get something or there's going to be something afforded to them because they're part of that organization. What message do you wish professionals caught up in the prestige of their employer or looking at a new employer? What do you wish they knew that might put them in a better spot, perhaps? It's a little trite, but to put it succinctly, you don't get paid for prestige. You can collect all of the indirect accolades you want to through your employer. But at the end of the day, what I think kind of two cycles of like economic turmoil that most of us, even young professionals have been through at this point with the financial crisis in 07 to 10, and then through COVID and things like that, I, I think what it's shown is you'll have the red carpet rolled out by these companies when they need you. And when they don't need you, they will not hesitate for a second to let you go, right? And kick you to the curb. Even the most prestigious. I mean, it used to be that like getting a job at Google, right? Was like, I mean, you've made it at life. It's like a lifetime appointment to the Supreme Court, right? Like, I mean, having seen cycles of layoffs now at Google, you've got a, a, this whole sector of tech focused people who are like, huh, you know, maybe that's not all it was cracked up to be. I mean, you heard the stories of these popular, famous companies that everyone wanted to work for, where people were finding out that they got fired by their email not working that morning. I mean, it's just just egregious stuff. And I think it highlights, and I think people are starting to notice, which would be my message, take notice. If you chase the prestige, there's a very high likelihood at some point it's going to come back and bite you. They don't care. They can't care. They have shareholders to answer to. I get it. I can't say... Twitter's evil for laying off a large part of the workforce if the large part of the workforce was indeed not necessary to build the future of the company. That's what business is, but that's pretty tough to hear when you're the person getting laid off, right? 
you have to be strategic about what you're doing with your career and what you're chasing. And if you're chasing that prestige, it's a hollow asset. You're not going to get anything from it. I will say that at the same time, I trade on my prestigious background all the time, right? The fact that I'm a University of Michigan law grad, the fact that I've worked at the best corporate law firms in the world. I mean, that does mean something that has some meaning. So that's not to say like, hey, if you're going to business school, like ignore Goldman Sachs and just take a job at like Main Street private wealth in the middle of nowhere America. But that may be a path to get to, right? Using some of that prestige as a stepping stone, I think can be a very smart and strategic decision. But to think that you're going to ride a career on another company's prestige, I think is just very short-sighted. And you need to be a lot more surgical and thoughtful about what matters in life. And if you find yourself saying that your values are building a family or personal autonomy or things like that, you've got to look at the prestige as a stepping stone to get there because you're not going to get that level of ownership over your professional life at Goldman Sachs. You're just not, right? I'm sure I'm going to offend plenty of Goldman employees saying that, but I mean, that's just, that's the reality. And if you want something different and you want that life, great, go chase it. Just go in with eyes wide open, knowing that environment you're chasing it in. And and it's not going to be one of personal autonomy and three o'clock on Thursday, little league practices with your kids. It just depends on where your values are. Not everyone shares the same values. I get that. But that's certainly my approach to it. Let's talk about that for a minute, because I agree with you about that prestige. But one of the things on your personal side is I know you have this pinned Twitter thread that you include information about your family, your wife of over 17 years. 18. We celebrated our anniversary last week. I stand corrected. So 18 (laughs) years. I feel it's beneficial as well. But why do you feel sharing personal information about your relationships, about parenting is important to you? A couple reasons. The easy answer, but it is a true answer, is because that's where I put meaning in my life. And I want to talk about things that are meaningful to me. I like the career that I have chosen, which is why I talk about it, right? But I also have other values and interests, some of which I don't necessarily talk about openly. I'm pretty politically minded, but we're building in public, so we don't weigh into politics, for example, on social media. That's just something we've chosen to do. I also think it's really important. Professional services is a changing landscape. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this as well. It used to be, say, 20 years ago, where if you're looking, I'll use kind of a non-legal space, if you're hiring a private wealth manager, right, you're in large part hiring a reputation. It was the same in legal services, right? You're hiring a reputation. You're hiring a deal sheet and a resume. That's changed in kind of this digital social media age, I think. There are certain areas where it isn't, right? Google's always going to go to the resume building law firm or whatever. But by and large, on like, we'll call it Main Street, people don't want to hire a law firm anymore. They want to hire a lawyer that they like, that they're going to enjoy being on a phone call with, that they're going to be able to feel and think of as a strategic partner. So I think it's important just to get to know people. Like I said, we don't do like blatant marketing, but we're building our law firm in public. Everything's kind of oriented towards helping people understand who we are personally. And when they pick up the phone to Kevin Henderson, they're hiring Kevin Henderson, the M&A lawyer. They're not necessarily hiring SMB Law Group. It's important for me for people to understand who I am, 
what I'm about and the ability to like field an incoming call to talk about the bourbon collection or whatever, because people have seen in posts or video or talk about the marching band thing that I mentioned on a weekend when I was at a tournament with my kids or whatever, like that just, that builds more meaningful relationships and it makes my job more meaningful to me to not just be that like outside cost center that they had to call to ask this question to, but more picking up the phone to a strategic partner and friend that we can like collaborate and have an open dialogue about what's in the best interest for the business. And it leads to a different type of relationship, I think, that is becoming increasingly more important in an age where the way people make a buying decision, particularly on a professional service, it's a changing landscape, I think. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you a thousand percent. I've talked about this often on this show and other shows that 20 years ago, it might take five, six, seven, eight meetings with a family to get them to the point where they're ready to move on. And now we're seeing that many times in one, maybe two meetings, because when they get to us, they already pretty much know us. They like us and they trust us because of what they're seeing out in the universe, whether it's social media, on our website, Twitter, wherever that be, because we're putting so much information out there. And I think it's incredibly helpful to shrinking that entire process. And it resonates very well with me, what you said. I can't tell you the number of people I talk to that I'll field a random question of like, hey, I don't have a deal, but I'm like looking at one and have a quick question. Can I pick your brain for five minutes? Sure, I've got time on a Friday afternoon. Let's chat. And the comments always the same. Like, I can't wait to go under LOI to work with you guys. Right. It's like almost like in some respects, people are out there trying to get that deal in order to come work with SMB Law Group just because of that way we're building personally. And like, yeah, they, they, they want to work together. They want to be part of the team. We want to be part of their team. And it's really changed this feeling of, Let me interview you and prove to me you're the best lawyer to hire. A lot of that's just being done publicly by being personable and open about who you are and people get comfortable and they they want you to be on the other end of the phone when they have something ready to go. It's a game changer, I think. Agreed. So listen, I want to congratulate you on the launch of your podcast, The Mundane Millionaires. Thank you. Can you share with our listeners so they know a little bit about it? What's the mission of the show? What's it all about? We've hit a lot of the keywords. And if you listen to our podcast and hear the intro, you'll hear a lot of these themes we've already been talking about. There are a lot of podcasts out there covering a wide range of topics that are really great, even specifically in our ETA space about buying small businesses. What we kind of noticed, though, is that a lot of times they get into the nitty gritty, tell us the story of buying your business, break down the economics and how you analyze the business you wanted to buy. And no one was really kind of telling the story of these everyday entrepreneurs, right? And there's a lot of great podcasts out there that land the big fish and they get the interview with Mark Zuckerberg or some big VC founder or something like that. And Eric and I just kind of looked at each other and thought, like, why is nobody talking to the Wharton grad that was at McKinsey that was like, I want a better life. I'm going to move home to Tennessee and I'm going to buy an HVAC company for $4 million that's putting off a million dollars. And that person is a millionaire. By any stretch of the imagination, they are incredibly financially successful. Most of the time, they're in their mid-30s to early 40s. So they've got a whole career ahead of them still to build that into something even bigger. So we talk a lot about this idea of financial and time wealth 
and this transition of a whole generation of people away from chasing that prestige and wanting the the Lincoln Town Car in downtown Manhattan and the free dinners, which nobody talks about are free because you're in the office past 9 p.m., right? That are like, I want to own my time. I want to own my destiny. And I'm slaving away in a midtown Manhattan high rise for $400,000 a year when I can go back to my home community, raise a family, have all the autonomy that I want as a business owner and make two, three, four, five times that, that resonates with a lot of people, but nobody's really talking about those stories, right? Who are these people? Who are these random guys that spent a few years in the military, graduated from West Point, have a Wharton and Harvard degree, worked at McKinsey, and all of a sudden are like, I'm going to move to Tennessee and buy an HVAC company, right? That's literally one of our episodes we released a couple of weeks ago. And it's just this whole idea of shifting people's mindsets. It's that millionaire next door idea, right? Like your classic American millionaire is no longer the person that goes to Silicon Valley and nails it out of the park with a Facebook. It's someone just kind of building slowly with a boring main street business like commercial landscaping or HVAC installation or surveying, just building unbelievable time and financial wealth and freedom through entrepreneurship. And we wanted to tell their stories. That's the mission of Monday Millionaires and what we're trying to do. We've got a great lineup. We have a few episodes out already, which are great. A lot of interesting interviews to come and and all varying spaces, varying backgrounds, varying ages. We want to show people that you don't have to be the West Point grad and Wharton MBA and McKinsey alum to be a successful entrepreneur. Because for every one of those, there's a person that went to trade school, spent 12 years working his way up to become a master electrician that realized, man, with an SBA loan and a little bit of money I've saved, I can buy my employer's business and own my future. And I'm 37 years old. Those people are out there too. We want to show people that this idea of the millionaire is not the unique crazy kind of gleaming glitter on the hillside. It's anybody. It's your neighbor next door, the mundane guy down the road. That's what we're trying to do. Great. Well, we'll have a link to the show in the show notes for sure. So people could check that out and check out the show. I love that. Appreciate it. Now you mentioned it earlier. I know you're a diehard Michigan football fan, but I have to ask, (laughs) what about hockey? What's hockey again? Remind me. Oh, all right. I'm a San Diego native. So hockey's just not part of my DNA, despite the fact that back then when I was growing up in San Diego, they actually had an NHL team, the San Diego Goals. I, I lost track of if they moved or just went the way of the dinosaur. There ironically was a, a San Diego NHL hockey team, but I just, I never got into hockey even there. I mean, maybe, maybe if I went to Michigan undergrad, it would have been a little different because I probably would have been a little bit more involved in that social and sports scene. But being a grad student, I mean, Michigan football is Michigan football. Everyone knows it. Easy to fall in love. I grew up on football. I never made the Fair time enough. to Fair figure enough. out hockey. Ironically, I'm in another very hot part of the world in Dallas now that also has an incredible hockey team. Yeah, so pretty good I team. I follow it a little more now just on the NHL level than I really did during grad school. I do right. want to get back. Eventually, they do one game a year where they do an ice rink outside in the big house. I never went to one when I was a student. It's on my list in the next couple of years to make it to the game. Well, so. give it a try and make sure you bundle up because 
<laughs> I will do that. My family and I have been to a few outdoor games, and they could get quite chilly, especially somebody from Texas going to uh, that climate. It's a little bit I'm of sure. a shocker. So, sure. Kevin, it's been a pleasure having you on our show. We ask each of our guests the same final question, because after all, this is the Midland Money Mindset. We're all about joy here, and that is, what did you do today that brought you joy and put you in the right mindset for success? Well, we're recording earlier in the day, so I haven't had a lot of time. Set me up for success. I've been trying to get a new habit of to-do lists in the morning. I can't say that necessarily brings me joy, but the success piece. My kids are off to a band camp sectional this morning. So for me, it usually always comes down to my family. My wife was off at a workout, so spending 30 minutes with my boys up at 8 o'clock in the summer, which is rare. That's very early for them, shows their dedication to marching band, but that's those are the types of things that get me through the day looking forward to Friday evening when I can knock off and jump in the pool with them. So for me, it's always coming down to spending time with my wife or kids. And this morning, it was my two boys that I had 20 minutes with brewing coffee and chit-chatting and just it's easy to lose track of your teenagers' lives. Those moments become increasingly more precious. So it's super meaningful to me. Absolutely. Myself as well. So I appreciate you sharing that. And listen, like I said, we'll have all of your information in the show notes. But if people want to contact you, learn more about you, learn more about SMB Group, what is the easiest and the best place for them to do that? I'm across all platforms with the username K Henderson Co. CO at the end. With the exception of Instagram, it's dot co. For some reason, I can't figure out how to get rid of the dot there. That said, 95% of the time I'm on Twitter. So Twitter's the easiest place to find me at K Henderson Co. I try and keep up on DMs with Twitter and LinkedIn. Those are probably the easiest ways to find what I'm talking about, what we're doing. And a simple DM is an easy way to get in touch and probably the easiest way for your listeners to remember at this point. So don't be a stranger and yeah, reach out if I can be helpful with anything. And thank you so much. And I encourage everybody to take a listen to the uh, Monday and Millionaires podcast. I think you'll enjoy it, get a lot from it. And I thank you for taking out the time today, Kevin, and make it a great day. I appreciate that. Likewise. I want to thank Kevin Henderson for being a guest on the Midland Money Mindset. Kevin and his partners are building a boutique law firm to serve the masses. They are doing it in a way that is attracting some of the best talent in their profession. Kevin and his team understand how people want to be treated and how to build a culture, even with a remote team. That will serve their clients in the best way possible. Kevin Henderson and SMB Law Group, as well as his podcast, The Mundane Millionaires, can be found across most social media platforms. All the contact information needed to find them can be found in the show notes. Thank you for joining us this week on the Midland Money Mindset. Make sure you visit our website at midlandmoneymindset.com and smash the subscribe button so you don't miss a show. We encourage you to help others find our valuable content and please don't keep us a secret. You can also schedule an Is There a Fit call right from our website or by using the link that you'll find in the description section of your podcast player or app. And be sure to join us for our next episode to learn more about getting your mind right when it comes to all things money. 
The opinions voiced in the Midland Money Mindset Show with Lawrence Sprung are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. No strategy ensures success or protects against loss. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial or tax advisor prior to investing. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC registered investment advisor. Guests on the Midland Money Mindset Show are not affiliated with CWM LLC.